Does it work? There we go. Uh, what's the most common topic in the Gospels? Any, any ideas? Salvation. Salvation. All right. Anybody else? It's always easy if you look at the line on the notes. What is the kingdom of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is by far and away the most explicit, common topic in the Gospels. Okay. What's interesting, by the way, I don't know about your church or whatever, but you know, in my in my experience of thirty years in, in ministry, plus obviously I kind of grew up in the church as well. Uh, I don't hear about the kingdom of God a whole lot. We, you know, right? Salvation is what we hear a lot about, right? The, the salvation story, things like that. We don't hear a lot about the kingdom of God. Yet, if we open up the Gospels, let's go to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be there a couple different times. And I'll, I'll put this verses up on the screen, but anytime you want to open your Bibles, you'd be happy to do so. Mark chapter 1. And I got the New American Standard. That's why I like putting it up on, up on the screen. Okay, right? There you go. It says verses uh, 14 and 15. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. And since I got this recording, I'll go ahead and read because then we'll have a long blank part on the, on, the, on the recording. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The first proclamation of Jesus in the gospel of Mark, he's preaching... The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So here, we, this is how it starts. Now, now you might be aware that Matthew's going to use the phrase "kingdom of heaven," but it's, it means the same thing. Matthew's just being a good Jewish way of of, of uh, avoiding the word "God," right? They just try not to say "God" at all possible, so they'll say "heaven" instead of "God." Right. So, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is the most common topic in the biblical story, and that's what we're going to unpack. We're going to spend Tonight, a little bit, uh, uh, quite a bit, and then uh, uh, next week and the week, or next time we meet, and, and the time after that as well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to really get saturated in the, in the, in the gospel story. All right, now, the question then is, is what does the kingdom of God mean? What is the kingdom of God? And we're going to unpack this a lot, so we're just going to start with it simply tonight. But as we keep going, we're going to keep unpacking it. If this is what Jesus was preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does it look like? What does it mean? What's the nature of the kingdom? Any ideas? Wherever his rule is, wherever his rule is, is proclaimed. Excellent, excellent, right? It, it's where God rules, mm -hmm. right? The, the essence of the kingdom of God is God's the king, mm -hmm. right? And it's his dominion and, what he, and his authority and what he's overseeing and what he's establishing, right? What else? What else? What are some features of the kingdom of God? What does it look like? Think of Jesus. Think of the ministries. What is he doing? What's going on? Well, all right. Well, we got to keep unpacking this. All right. Let's go to the next question on the outline because it kind of on the notes because it kind of goes back goes back in terms of relating to the kingdom of God. And that's what's the gospel. By the way, side note, I was at a conference, and I'm still baffled, I'm still bothered by it. About a year ago, church planting conference, if you're not aware, I pastored two, uh, two churches, one's a church plant, we'll talk more about that later. Um, and it was a church planting conference last year, and there's a breakout session, about 100 people in this room, breakout session, and the guy, guy goes, 
I think with all you know, church planners, if we if we would ask what is the gospel, we'd probably get a hundred different answers from a hundred different people. And I thought, oh Lord, please no. Seriously, we can't even agree on what the gospel is, or we have no conception, you know, you know right, of, of the gospel. And I, I was, uh, it was, and my his definition. Let me think. Let me see if I can remember. His definition is, oh, oh, it's got, it was, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> it was bad. What, what did he say? What did he say? He said, oh, I can't think of what it is. But I remember looking at somebody next to me. Uh, I can't remember. I, I'll, I'll have to think about what he said. Because I remember looking at the person next to me who was, who was part of my uh, entourage. And I said, I said, you know, Hitler could say that. His definition of the gospel was something that Hitler could have advocated. I thought, oh, this is really bad. I would start, and don't be afraid to answer, by the way. This, you know, we're we're going to have correct answers. It's going to you know, maybe a component here, a component there. I don't want you to be afraid uh, at all. I would start with, real simple. The gospel is three words. It starts with this. Jesus is Lord. Right? Jesus is Lord. Now, we could go back to point number one then and say, of course, the, the kingdom of God is the kingdom where Jesus is the Lord, right? I think Larry said, you know, it's, it's, God's, it's God's dominion. God, right? in, in all reality, the king is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Right? So when we read the Gospels, we need to see this story unfolding. And, the, and, the, and not just the Gospel, because Paul is, gonna, is not going to let this die either. And the story that's unfolding is a story about how God became the king about God becoming the king and how he became the king and what it means that he is the king. Now, mind you, if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not. Them's fighting words. It's intensely political. You know, separation of church and state and keep keep religion out of politics and politics out of religion. Sorry, Jesus won't let you have that. Now, not, not in an American sort of way, right? Uh, but in, in, in a biblical sort of way, it, it's, it's not going to work so well. You start walking around going, Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not, and you're probably going to have to explain yourself. And it probably won't end well. But it's significant. And we've got to think about what this means in our own lives, by the way, right? In our own churches, because this is the whole... If Jesus is Lord, that means my pride is not. That means not only Caesar is not, but I'm not. Not as my wealth, not as my good looks. I know, I know, right? All right, I just came. <laughs> not as my power, not as money, right? Not as my education. We can just keep going. Jesus, right? You can't serve God and mammon. It's either Jesus is Lord or something else is. And uh, in the book of Colossians, Paul says, referring to, you know, do not follow these things, you know, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And then he says, which is idolatry? Greed, he says, which is idolatry? Idolatry is having another God, right? So if Jesus is Lord, but you got greed, then sorry, Jesus isn't Lord, greed is. So the gospel is Jesus is Lord. Jesus comes saying, guess what? I'm come to take my rightful place on the throne. This is Mark 1. This is not Mark 16. This isn't Luke 24. We're not Matthew 28 right now. We're in Mark chapter 1. The gospel begins with Jesus saying, I have come to be the king. You see, the wise men had something going then, didn't they? 
We've come to see the king. They weren't making a mistake. The gospel writers are telling us about the wise men coming because they want us to understand that, hey, even those guys recognize the baby as the king. Now, what does that mean? And what does this kingdom look like? And most notably, what does this kingdom look like in contrast to the way we do kingdoms? That's what the biblical story is going to be all about. And we're going to see this especially in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's going to have this really powerful, powerful, convicting. Guys, this is not the way we do it. Now, let's go back to the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John very briefly. Let me go back. To, uh, we're going to go to the second point, Old Testament story here. And again, absolutely. I was just going to say, questions, comments, yeah. nine remarks, anytime. In the Gospel, we always explain as good news. Mm-hmm about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that, okay. that's usually the, the term that they use, but it's pointing to Jesus Christ. Because yes. of all that, he's special. He's Lord. Yes. Okay. So the statement was that when we talk about the gospel, we usually point to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Okay. And by the way, that's very creedal. Okay. That, in other words, when we go to the, to the Apostles' Creed, uh, or to the uh, uh, Nicene Creed, that, that's part of what's going on there, and there's, there's a reason why the creeds... Refer, but I, would add, I think we're missing something. If we say the gospel focused on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, I say, folks, we're in chapter 1 when Jesus says, I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God. You see, if it's about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ only, then we simply start in Mark 15. And read Mark 15 and 16. Matthew 26, 27, and 28. That's all we really need. But we've got 25 chapters in, Mar- in Matthew bef- of, of other stuff. If, if the focus is the death, burial, and resurrection, and obviously that's extremely important, we, and we're not going to deny that at all, I, I would add the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then if we want to go further, I'd say, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the church. Continue, because we're proclaimers of the kingdom. We're going to see this in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. You might not, you, you might not realize that, but I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. I'll show you. So it's, it's about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension into heaven as the true king, his sending of the Holy Spirit, his equipping us. I mean, what does Peter call us? You are kings and priests. Well, Revelation 1, 5. Right? You are kings and priests to our God in Revelation 5, 9. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, 1 Peter 2. You see this language that talks about us as kings, as queens, as as priests. And we're going to see how this is going to connect, which is the next point here, to the Old Testament story. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, first off. And any questions are always fine. Matthew 1, 1. All right, and uh, uh, Matthew 1, I'll read the New American Standard. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Interestingly, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And if I'm not mistaken, genealogies are kind of like an Old Testament thing, right? I mean, they're, 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 they're in abundant places in the Old Testament. What are we doing with a genealogy in the New Testament? Now, note, by the way, the, the word genealogy, I'm going to, put, I'm going to, I'm going to scroll up here, and um, let's scroll right here, I highlight it. Oh, it didn't work. I highlighted it twice. It's in yellow. Uh, geneseos. It's the word genesis. 
this is the genesis of Jesus. Okay? Which is a word that Matthew is using to connect us to the Old Testament story. And what you'll note as you go through Matthew chapter 1, all right, let me click on that, is the first 17 verses are a genealogy. And this genealogy is doing something very significant. And we'll look at the genealogy when we do Matthew in two weeks, uh, just a, a little bit at least. It's, it's connecting us to the Old Testament story, though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mark chapter 1, go back to Mark. And one of the things I like about the New American Standard that helps us here is it puts in all caps whenever, the whenever they're, they're convinced that the text is quoting an Old Testament passage. Not always, you know, sometimes we can't tell if they're alluding to it or if they're quoting it or whatever. But uh, clearly, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 are quoting the Old Testament. Now, the quote is from Isaiah, uh, Exodus, and Malachi, even though Mark only attributes, attributes it to Isaiah. Isaiah is kind of the major one, no problem at all. But as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'll send my messengers ahead of you who prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Okay, we're going to come back to this verse in a, few, in a, in a little bit. So Matthew begins with the genealogy. Mark begins, really, the, ver, the, the verse 2 could kind of be your first verse. We'll look at that when we do Mark in a couple weeks. Um, with a quote from Isaiah. It's technically Isaiah, Exodus, and Malachi. But a quote from Isaiah. And a very significant passage in the book of Isaiah. Luke... If, if we were to look at Luke, we, we would note the first two chapters. It's not just Luke. I mean, it, it, it's, it's everywhere. The first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke are just going to be a full of abundant quotes from the Old Testament. Oh, stop. There we go. Um, there. And you can see, as I scroll through them, they're going kind of quickly, you're going to see Mary's song and Zechariah's song uh, and these extensive quotes from, from the Old Testament. Luke is clearly connecting us with this Old Testament story. In fact, the birth of John the Baptist actually is, is, is Hannah, is, uh, uh, Hannah and, and, e and Eli. It's Samuel. John the Baptist's birth is actually compared with Samuel's birth. The Gospel of John, what are the first three words of the Gospel of John? In the beginning. Clearly connecting us with the first three words of the book of Genesis. And when we look at the Gospel of John in a few weeks, we'll, we'll know, hey, John wants us to understand Jesus as the new creation, the new Genesis. The, the, there's, there's, a new, there's something significant about what was his first miracle according to the Gospel of John. Anybody know? John 2, Jesus turns water into wine. There's water, there's something going on. Nicodemus, chapter 3, you've got to be born again, born of water and the Spirit. Chapter 4, the woman at the well. You should have asked me, and I would have given you living water, and you'd never thirst again. Okay. There's something going on in the Gospel of John. It's this new creation. We'll note in a few weeks that Jesus appears to the disciples in John 20 after the resurrection, and he, and he breathes on them. Well, the word breathe on them is the same word that God used in Genesis 2, verse 7. God breathed on Adam, and he became a living being. Is there a new creation? Is that what John's about? So the first point is this, is the Gospels are connecting us to the Old Testament story. And for many of us, and myself included, we tend to live in the New Testament, don't we? Right? And I mean, I had someone in my church not long ago, you know, I, I don't think I've ever heard a whole lot of sermons out of the Old Testament. But okay, well, I'm going to change that. So, you know, I preached Genesis through, I, I think I got like Isaiah, you know. And I just did one, one week on Leviticus, 
one week on Numbers, three or four on Deuteronomy, you know, one week on Joshua, one week on you know, Judges. Just kind of, hey, here, we've we got to understand the Old Testament story. And, and here's the point, that's this. Opening up Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, then, is like opening up a sequel without having read the first book. If we haven't read the Old Testament, well, we're stepping into a sequel, and we've got we to know what's going on. How many of you guys have seen the Star Wars movies? Right? Let's start back when I was a child, right, with Star Wars with number four, right? Uh, um, the, the first Star Wars is actually the fourth book. Right? Well, if, and then you've watched five, uh, four, five, and six, and then it goes back to one. Once it goes back to one, you're starting to go, oh, four starting to make more sense. And then two, and then three, you're like, oh, now I understand four. Well, it's the same thing. We really can't understand the, Old Testament, the New Testament story unless we have a good grasp of the Old Testament story. So if you'll indulge me for a moment, let's look very briefly here at this Old Testament story. And I kind of just went ahead and put it down on your, on, on, oh, here we go, on, on your notes. All right, the book, the Old Testament story, questions, comments, anytime you want, uh, uh, interject, begins with God making humanity and placing them in the garden. You, guys, you see that, Tim, Matt? You got one, Kevin? Yeah, that's this one there. I thought I got one. That's good. Maybe I didn't. All right. Uh, God, God makes humanity, places them in the garden. Now, Adam and Eve were supposed to be God's image bearers. We can spend a lot of time here, so I've got to be careful. But uh, they were going to reflect God's glory to the rest of creation. The Genesis account of Genesis 1 and 2 uh, uh, parallels ancient creation accounts and what happens is in the ancient creation accounts the god or the gods create uh, an idol to dwell in this temple so that those who come into the temple will know what the god looks like but god doesn't make an idol in fact we're forbidden right he makes humanity in his image so the rest of creation will know what god looks like and will reflect god's glory uh, they will reflect god's glory to the rest of creation problem is Adam and Eve decide we're going to be gods ourselves. Right? I mean, all, it's, a, it's a kingdom story, right? Who's sovereign? Who's Lord? Who gets to make the rules? And Adam and Eve say, we will. Right? We'll decide right and wrong for ourselves. We'll make our own rules. God's answer, okay, great. Guess what? You can't be in my presence any longer. And God expels Adam and Eve from God's presence. Now, this is significant because this is the biblical story. The biblical story is, and by the way, note in Genesis 2, Adam was not made in the Garden of Eden. It says that God took the man whom he had made and he, put, and he placed him in the Garden of Eden. He was made outside of Eden and then brought into Eden. So Adam and Eve were brought into God's presence but then expelled. And what we'll see in the Bible, if, you, if we were doing an Old Testament uh, uh, survey class or intro to the Old Testament class, uh, we would note it's this story about cycle after cycle after cycle of, okay, go ahead and come into my presence. Oh, guess what? You messed up. Get out. Okay, come back into my presence. Okay, oh, you messed up. Get, get out. All right. The story, in other words, what's the biblical story about? The biblical story is how God's going to restore humanity to his presence. Or you could also say how God's going to restore his presence to amongst humanity. Okay. Yeah. God desires to dwell among us. It's a major theme in the Old Testament. I will dwell among you. I'll, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Right? Remember, God walked in the garden, Genesis 3.8. Right? 
I'll walk among you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. This recurring, recurring theme in the Old Testament. God's longing to restore his presence amongst his creation, amongst his people. But they've been expelled. Now, uh, if you keep going through Genesis 1 through 11, you find out, well, it gets so bad that he floods the world. And you'll see a, a, a decreation. He, he separated the waters in Genesis 1 to create, to create land animals, but then he floods the earth. He's decreating, bringing chaos back. But that didn't solve the problem. I mean, he saved Noah, but as soon as Noah got off the boat, what did he do? He got drunk. So Noah's not going to be the solution. It's not, right? And then, then there's the Tower of Babel, and it's chaos. And, and it's, it's almost as bad as it was before the flood. So that God says, Abraham... Come here. Mm. Come to the land, right? No, come to the land I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation, and I'll bless all nations through your seed. I would contend if we were doing an ultimate course that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the thesis statement of the Bible. Right? Uh, Abraham, you come here, you leave your land and family, come to the place I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation. I'll make, you, I'll make your name great. Which, by the way, note in the Tower of Babel, they were trying to make a, na- a name that was great for themselves. Mm-hmm. Right? But I'll, I'll make your name great. Right? And I'll bless all nations through your seed. Right? Or through you. God's going to bring his presence to, a- to Abraham. And through Abraham and his offspring, he's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Now, note land and family, the key themes throughout the Old Testament. Land, by the way, note who came with Abraham? Lot. He didn't leave his family. Whoops. Lot came with it, right? So, kind of obedient, very obedient. By the way, Abraham's a righteous man according to the biblical text. But, but note that Lot's this threat to the, to the promise because Abraham's offspring was going to inherit the land and Lot's not Abraham's offspring. So there's constant threat. All right, now, the covenant then uh, is Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 27 through 30. So here, here's what happens. God makes a covenant. Uh, and the word covenant basically means uh, uh, an agreement between two parties. Right? Now, a covenant, a biblical covenant, and ancient covenants were often between a king and his subjects. It's not, it's, not, it's not a treaty. It's not amongst two equals. It's a, it's a sovereign and subjects. And the sovereign says, I'll be your God. And the subjects are, you'll be my people. And here's how that's going to work. I'll give you my laws, and you obey them, and I bless you. You don't obey them, and I curse you. And the blessings and curses are always in accordance with land and family. Land and family, land and family, land and family, right? So here's what's going Through your family, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Through this land that I'm going to give you, I'm going to bless all the lands of the earth. It's, remember, God's presence was going to fill the earth. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I would contend, and we won't go into detail tonight, of course, that Deuteronomy 27 through 30 are perhaps the four most important chapters in the Old Testament. And we're going to, we're going to go back to them a couple times, probably, uh, as we go through the New Testament, because we're going to see that the New Testament is saying, fulfill, 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 especially when we get... Uh, to, well, probably even in Mark chapter 1 tonight. Now, uh, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Now, the idea of that, it, you can kind of read that in a, in, in a, like, God's this evil ogre, mean God, justice being, who just wants to punish people. That, that's not what's going on. Uh, what's going on is God's love. And the answer is, I'm going to get, my laws are good. They're, they're for your good, right? You know, choose good. Um, 
Uh, and if you do so, I'll bless you and all the nations will see how great I am. This is the way it's going to work. I'm going to make this people so that through this people I can be made known. Right? That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. So in other words, Abraham and Israel were fulfilling the role of Adam, making God known. You obey my laws and I'll bless you and the nations will see how great I am. They'll flow into Israel and Israel's borders will expand. Zechariah 1, Zechariah 2. Um, and, and it'll be awesome. You don't obey my laws. I'm going to have to punish you because I can't let the nations think I'm, I'm going to let my people do that stuff. And you'll be cursed. So blessings and curses, blessings and curses. Note that when we get to, God, to, to Matthew, especially the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then Luke chapter 6, uh, blessings and curses for the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospel of Luke. So, uh, on the notes, they're to obey his laws, God will bless them, it'll be landed family. Now, the prophets come along and say, and, and I, I kind of skipped over this, in Deuteronomy 27, 28, and 29, it goes on to say, well, here's what's going to happen. You're actually not going to do it. You, you're not, uh, Moses says, here's the law, Obey it, I'll bless you. Don't obey, I'll curse you. By the way, I know what's going to happen. I already know the answer. You're going to disobey. All right. Now, blessings and curses are land and family. So the curse is going to be, I have to, I'm going to have to kick you out of the land. I'm going to, if you don't obey, you don't get to keep the land. The land is my covenant promise to you, but it requires your obedience. The book of Leviticus says the land will vomit you out. It'll, 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 the land will spew you out. I won't have to do it. The land will do it. So the prophets come along, right? and, and the prophets, if you're not aware, are, are often called covenant enforcers. Deuteronomy is the key book of the Old Testament. Isaiah and, and the prophets, uh, all the prophets are going, uh, the law says, and the law is Deuteronomy, right? Uh, Deuteronomy is when the, the law was given to the Israelites as they were about to enter the promised land. So that's the one that they took in the land with them. So the law says, if you don't do this, you're going to be punished and you're going to be sent out of the land. I promise you, you're going to be expelled if you don't obey. That's, that's the curse. Right. And so what ends up happening is they get sent into exile. They, they, get, they get taken away. The Assyrians conquer the northern tribes of Israel, 721 B.C., the Babylonians finally come in and conquer the southern tribe of Judah, 605 and 586 B.C. And now they're off in exile. Okay. So they've, they've been carried away. So now you've got these prophets, Isaiah um, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who, who are prophesying that if you don't obey the law, God's going to send you away. Guess what happens? You don't obey, God sends them away. And then you get these latter prophets, Haggai, Malachi, right? Uh, and even the second part of Isaiah, who come along and say, okay, now the, the story has to change a little bit because now you live in exile. Here, here, you've been raised your whole life with a story that the God of Abraham is the true God and the other gods are not real gods. Um, and, and, he, and he's not only our God, he's the true sovereign God, but it doesn't look like that right now because we live under Babylonian captivity. We follow their rules and their laws and eat their food. and do. The, it's not looking too good for us. And, and if, if our God was the true God, how could the Babylonian God have conquered us? Because that's the way it works in the ancient world, right? Is If I conquer you, then my God's more powerful than your God. Mm -hmm. So the latter prophets are coming along, consoling the people, first off saying, uh, you deserved it. Right? You, you know, it. It's your fault. And God used the Babylonians to conquer you or the, or the Assyrians to conquer you, like in Isaiah. They, they didn't come in because they're more powerful. Their God's more powerful than Yahweh. They came in because Yahweh called them in. Right. Now, then God says in the latter prophets, but there'll come a time when God will restore you. 
God's going to bring you back to the land. And the restoration of Israel coming back to the land, it's often in Eden language. It'll be like it was in the Garden of Eden, but it's also often, it'll be even better than it was before. You know the temple that you used to have? Haggai 2, I think it's 2.9 says, the latter glory of the house will be greater than the former. The house that God's going to build is going to be better than the one that you used to have. So, so even though you're punished and even though everything looks bad right now and you're in exile and th- it, it, it doesn't look good for you, hang in there, hold on to your faith because God will restore you to the land. And when he does, it'll be greater than it was before. Now, one other thing to add, and, and, that, and that is this. The book of Ezekiel also indicates that not only did the Israelites get kicked out of the land, but when they left the land, Yahweh left the land with them. Yahweh's gone. So we kind of, if we keep reading the Old Testament story, and Ezra and Nehemiah kind of end the Old Testament story from like the historical context, right? And they kind of start coming back, right? Now, no, by the way, they didn't all come back because Nehemiah is still not back, right? Um, so Nehemiah comes to check on those who have come back. And like, well, you got, you know, we've got to rebuild this wall for protection right, in the book of Nehemiah. But Ezra and Nehemiah both indicate that we're back in the land, but we're not really owning the land. We're slaves in the land. This is, this is, in fact, the word slave is actually used. Nehemiah, I think it's 9 verse 30 and, and Ezra 9 something close to 30, 32. Right? Uh, that we're slaves, we're back in the land, but we're slaves in our own land. And the question of the first century, this leads us to the New Testament now, the question of the first century by the rabbis was, was God in that temple or not? Because the temple was rebuilt. Is God in there? Did Yahweh come back or not? Is he in the building or not? This is one of the questions that's, that's circulating around as the New Testament get, gets drawn to, to, to a beginning. So let's go to Mark 1. Then we'll go a few more minutes and we'll take a break. Mark 1, 1 through 4. Let's go back to that passage that we read a little earlier. <coughs> questions, comments? Like 75,000 over, foot overview of the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve are going to make God's presence known. They don't do so. They, they get expelled. God calls Abraham in. He's actually not a, a faithful, but nonetheless, God makes a promise to them. I'll give you land and family, and I'll bless all the nations through you. But they're not obedient. They get sent out of the land. Now, are they back or not is the question of, of the day. And is Yahweh back or not? Now, note there's been 400 years of silence from the time of Ezra to the time of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a very strange folk because he looks and acts and does and dresses like a prophet. But we haven't seen a prophet. My, my great, 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 great grandparents told me about prophets, but I've never seen one. We read about them, but there ain't been no prophets for 400 years. So what's going on? And, and the Gospel of John says the religious leaders sent a delegation out to go, oh, yeah, what's going on out here? Right? Are you going to bring a rebellion? Is that how it's going to work? We need to know so we can protect ourselves about Rome. But you look strange, and you look innocent, and you're dressed eating locusts, and you, know, you look like a prophet. So what's going on? So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, verse 2, Behold, listen carefully, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Who's coming back? The Lord is. The Lord's coming back. And notice where he's coming. He's coming from the wilderness. If you go east of, of, of Israel, you end up in the Arabian wilderness. The wilderness where Jesus was tempted, east of Jerusalem, on the slopes down on towards the dead. That east is the wilderness. Where's Babylon? East. From the east. Make a highway in the desert because the Lord is coming back. Now to really fully understand the significance of what's going on here, you have to understand the verse that's being quoted and where it sits in the book of Isaiah. So let me briefly allude to that, and then we'll take our break. The passage being quoted is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Okay. Now let me, let me, um, let me bring up Isaiah 40, because it's actually very significant here. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Okay. The first, if you read Isaiah, and if you're, if, if you're attuned to the scholarly world, you'll find out that scholars will commonly say there's at least two Isaiahs. It doesn't matter. Who cares? It's all part of our Bible. I'm not going to... It's silly quibbling in my mind. Um, but chapters 1 through 39 are radically distinct from chapters 40 through 55, if not 40 through 66. The first 39 chapters... My people don't know me. An ox knows his manger, a donkey its master's, you know, right? But my people don't know me, right? Mm -hmm. Sons I have reared up, but they, this is chapter one. You've committed all these crimes and seek justice in Isaiah chapter one. You, my people have, have deserted my cause. And it's worthless. Isaiah chapter five is a parable about a, 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 God planted a vineyard and he, he expected good grapes and he got none. And the vineyard, he says, I think verse 7 and 8 is, the vineyard is the whole house of Israel. I planted you. I took all the rocks out. I put good fertilizer and good soil and, and, and water. And I, and I dug a well and I dug a wine back because I expected wine. And I put a watchtower up to keep the animals away. And I didn't get any good grapes. Israel has failed. And it's the book of Deuteronomy. They've, they've disobeyed the, the covenant. So guess what's going to happen? Punishment. First 39 chapters, it's dire. Right? Uh, just what Deuteronomy says, this way Moses said, God's going to bring in the Assyrians, they're going to punish you, it's not going to go over well. And then look at chapter 40 now, verse 1. Mm -hmm. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received in the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Her sins have been atoned. They've been, you've been punished enough. Her iniquity has been removed. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The punishment is over. When Mark quotes Isaiah 40, he's saying the punishment is at its end and God is bringing the restoration. Make a highway. You, you, by the way, if you're preaching this, you just can't, you know, make a highway in the desert. No, you, you got it. This has got to be shouted because this is, the good, this is the gospel. Make a highway in the desert. The Lord is coming back. And we've been waiting for him for 4 
hundred, well, for five, almost 600 years, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And the Lord is clearly Jesus. Because he goes on to baptize Jesus in chapter 1. And then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So it's extremely significant that he's quoting Isaiah 40 through 55, the very beginning of it. Now in the ancient world, by the way, the way what you would do is you would quote a verse or a part of a verse and everybody knows the whole story's in mind. Well, we think the verse is in mind. No, no, the whole story's in mind. So if I, if I make a reference to the fact that a man must be born again, if you're a first century, first century Jewish Christian, you'd be thinking, oh, that's the Nicodemus episode. And the whole story is, in, and now I can talk about any aspect of the Nicodemus story that I want. As soon as you quote verse 3, you mean the whole passage from Isaiah 40 and following. It's the restoration that is coming about in Jesus, and this is good news. All right, questions? Let's take a break here. It's been a little bit anyways. It's a few minutes before 7. We're good. Any, we're good? All right. And